It's Thursday, June 3rd, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm here on the shore of the Gulf Coast for Radio Free Oz, talking with Charles Dunder, the latest member of Obama's Gang of Five sent down here to solve the oil spill crisis. Uh, you've just arrived, haven't you, Charles? Yes, I replaced Professor Katz, uh, you know, the astrophysicist, when it was revealed that he was a virulent homophobe and a climate change denier. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, but, so w- what do you add to the team? Then? Well, I run the Petro Nutritional Institute back at Solid State University. I'm down here investigating a sustainable solution to the well, a massive loss of fish and shellfish that's going on right here at our feet as we speak. A uh, Petro Nutrition. I'm not familiar with that field. Oh, well, it's relatively new. You know, it didn't take off until we got the whole petrophilic nano-cloning process down. Excuse me? Well, sorry, uh, Mr. Oz. Simply put, given the right starter genes, chain-ganged polymers, and robust steroids, we can create a host of creatures that not only survive in oil-saturated water, but... Well, they really thrive on it. Oh, mm-hmm. Is uh, is that one of them? That thing you're holding in your hand looks looks vaguely like a shrimp. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. We call it the slick shrimp, and and yes, it does thrive in oil polluted wetlands, just like these. Uh, now, you throw a million slick shrimp scat. <laughs> the little fellows are called when they come out of the test tube, no bigger than a puppy seed. <laughs> and a month later, well, they're as big as as Buster hair. <laughs> Ready to be flavored and sent off to market. You want to try one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a little chewy. Oh, that's the that's the polymer filling. How does it taste? Uh, tastes like pork. Yeah, yeah. Pork flavored slick shrimp. One of my one of my favorites. It's uh, it's pan Asian. You know. let, let let me have it back. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, now you see. Watch this. I I just dip it in the degreaser and watch as it springs back to life. It, it could rub a little of this on it. And, all right, here you are again. Now give it a try. Mmm. Now that tastes like jumbo bayou stampy, the real thing. Oh well, they're all the real thing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and that should go over real good with the green crowd. I mean, you can really eat them. Up to a dozen times, we believe, before the steroid skeleton breaks down, and, well, they just turn to mush. It's a reasonable short-term solution, Charles, but I, I can't wait for the real shrimp to return. Oh, 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 return? Well, Uncle Pete, that hole in the ocean floor is spewing some 200,000 gallons of oil a day. Your great-grandchildren will be waiting for these little shrimp to return. Now, so, now let's get real. I've got this oil-happy catfish here. You only have to put a match to it, like this. Ooh! <laughs> See? He's sautéed and ready to serve. <laughs> this is Peter Bergman for Radio Free Oz in the Gulf, and I want to go home. He <laughs> can never go home. You know, David, it was really hard on me with a, the Charles Dunder interview going down there to the... Gulf and seeing all that devastation, it, mm. was, it, it, it still haunts me. Bad, uh, bad on the boots, too. Uh, tough, very, tough very, should never have worn my, my retro beetle boots. I left them there, in a sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I bet you did. Well, you know, I, I had to stop. Before I came into the studio this afternoon, I had to stop and listen to the headlines. Of course you have to. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, uh, there, were, there was the, you know, the very calm voice of NPR, usually someone with a very hard-to-remember name, you know. Yeah. And uh, they'll tell you about what's going on. And then they cut away to the exciting thing down in the gut. Well, it was none of that. No. Uh, I was like, um, like no news and like it's still leaking. And I mean, it's been a month and well, here's help. The di- here's the difference. Somebody, somebody wrote me, a fan wrote a letter saying, I love your show very much, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes it's hard to listen to because it's uh, too dire. Uh. Okay. okay. Well, I'll <clears throat> I'll draw draw back from the prank here. And I, I no no. And I came yeah. back and said, not dire. Uh, we think it's urgent. Mm. See? And so, if you want to hear great radio, that's not dire. That's not dire, and really nor urgent. Listen to NPR. Good people, good friends of ours. But here, look, Dave, there's plenty of news. There's plenty about the Gulf. None of it's good news, but it's real news. It's in the White House. It's in BP. It's in committee. It's all over the place. How could you possibly miss it?
We're doing BP. And we're, uh, this is coming out of Politico. Uh, hopes for the latest effort to stop the oil leak in New Mexico, as we all know, were crushed when BP announced that the high-stakes top-kill operation failed and officials will try another option. You know, top-kill, top-gun. They should have flown in Tom Cruise. President Barack Obama responded to the news by calling the continued leaking of oil into the Gulf enraging as it is heartbreaking. What's heartbreaking to me is how little soul-searching we're doing as a gas-guzzling culture. I mean, the enraged president, the soul-searching president, doesn't get up and say, look, folks, there's going to be more of this, no matter how much we regulate it, no matter how much we keep an eye on it, as long as we are consuming 25% of the world's resources as 5% of the world's population. It doesn't balance. There's something wrong between the equals mark. So this is the president speaking. As I said recently, every day that this leak continues is an assault on the people of the Gulf Coast region, their livelihoods, and the natural bounty that belongs to us all. Okay? With Top Kill declared a, f a failure, Obama said the Coast Guard has now directed BP to cut the riser pipe on the offshore drilling rig and fit a containment structure over the leak a mile beneath the Gulf. It's a risky procedure never attempted at such depth. Heard that time and time again since we first hopped on this the first day it happened. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a real good idea, but it's kind of risky and we've never attempted it at this depth. And of course, every one of them has failed. So the approach is not without risk, Obama warned. Uh, that's why it was not activated until other meth methods had been exhausted. It will be difficult and will take several days. Several days equals how many hundreds of thousands of gallons of crude oil dumped into the Gulf? I mean, this is going to end up in kids' mathematics books. If uh, the pipe is spilling 12,000 gallons an hour, etc., etc., and they temporize for three days, and the president takes another four days to figure out what his name is, how dark will the water be in the Gulf of Mexico, and how many shrimp will die? As BP attempts the procedure, a called Lower Marine Riser Package Gap. This is a new addition to the oil spill shop talk. You know, you go to a party and say, you know, Lower Marine Riser Package Gap, it just didn't cut it. That's uh, too bad. Maybe we should go to, and then come up with another piece of, of shop talk. All right, so because it didn't work, oil could continue to gush into the Gulf for at least another week, broadening what is already the largest oil spill in U.S. history. At least, you know, we did it again. Bigger and better. Doug Suttles, remember him, BP's chief operating officer, had earlier made the announcement that the oil giant was abandoning the top kill effort to plug the leak with mud and cement. He said, we have not been able to stop the flow, Suttles said, without explaining why. We have, had made, we have made the decision to move on to the next option. Well, we've heard this from Spinmeister Doug before. He never explains why, because he either doesn't know or... He doesn't care. Suttle said it will take at least four days to see results from the latest attempt to cap the leak, which will collect most of the oil but not stop the flow. Officials don't expect relief wells to be complete until August. Did you hear that? August. <laughs> Obama said it is, an enra it is enraging, as it is heartbreaking, and we will not relent until this leak is contained, until the waters and the shores are cleaned up, and until the people unjustly victimized by this man-made disaster are made whole. Well, that's a big job, Mr. President, and may be going on after your four or eight years in office. The only consolation to me is that Bomber Boy McCain and the Drill Queen aren't running the show. And I'll be right back after this important word. Because of us, it's morning in America. Breakfast, honey? Thanks. Hey, is this real pork? Because of us, people in the Great Plains are just plain doing things. Little things, like taking money from machines. Hey, hey, stop, kid. I'm not a machine. Because of us, they're roasting East Coast marshmallows on the West Coast. Wow, these taste like pork. We're the people of U.S. Plus. Guess what we do? Chemistry, transportation, pork. <laughs> kind of. U.S. Plus. We own the idea of America. I'm back with more seep on Beep the Creep. 
Newly released documents, say the New York Times, show that in March, after several weeks of problems on the rig, BP was struggling with a loss of well control. And as far back as 11 months ago, it was concerned about the well casing and the blowout preventer on the doomed oil rig. On June 22nd, for example, BP engineers expressed concern that the metal casing the company wanted to use might collapse under high pressure. This would certainly be a worst-case scenario, Mark Halfley, a senior drilling engineer at BP, warned in an internal report. However, I have seen it. It happens, so I know it can occur. The company went ahead with the casing anyway, but only after getting special permission from BP colleagues because it violated the company's safety policies and design standards. So they had to get the okay from other people, you know, in the building to violate their own standards. Probably didn't take very long. He's had a little martini lunch and said, hey, Bill, what do you say if we just violate the safety policies and the design standards? Oh, Roger, it sounds like a good idea with me. Let me have another one of them dirty martinis. The internal reports do not explain why the company advocated for an exception. See? BP documents reveal the company officials knew the casing was the riskier of two options. BP's concerns about the casing did not go away after Mr. Halfley's 2009 report. In April of this year, BP engineers concluded that the casing was, quote, unlikely to be a successful cement job. Excuse me? According to a document referring to how the casing would be sealed to prevent gases from escaping up the well. In addition to focusing on the casing, investigators are also focusing on the blowout preventer, a fail-safe device that was supposed to slice through a drill pipe in a last-ditch effort to close off the well when the disaster struck. The blowout preventer did not work, which is one of the reasons oil has continued to spill in the Gulf, though the reason it failed remains unclear. The most important thing at a time like this is to stop everything and get the operation under control, said Greg McCormick, director of the Petroleum Extension Service at the University of Texas. He added that he was surprised that regulators and company officials did not commence a review of whether drilling should continue after the well was brought under control. (laughs) In April, the month the rig exploded. Workers encountered obstructions in the well. Most of the problems were conveyed to federal regulators, according to federal records. In the documents, company officials apologized to federal regulators for not having mentioned the type of casing that they were using earlier, adding that they had inadvertently failed to include it. That's that's an apology for you. In the uh, permit request, they did not disclose BP's own internal concerns about the design of the casing. Less than 10 minutes after the request was submitted, federal regulators approved the permit. 10 minutes. Who says the United States government is an unworkable, gigantic, can't-get-it-done bureaucracy? Just talk to BP. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer, right here at the First Act of God Church of Science Fiction. Now, what about the oil spill, dear friends? Well, my text today is from the book of Deep Water, where it's been written, We will make this right. Now, that's something to have faith in and say thank you for that. You know, this spill has defied the best scientific minds in the hydrocarbon community. Men and women who have taken invention and discovery right to the brink of the future. And yes, the fluids flow on unstinted and unstaunched among the turtles and dolphins. Well, perhaps this is the eternal punishment promised for hubris, and something golf balls and detergent can't cope with. Perhaps this is karma. And if it is, what can we do to help at this historical time, dear friends? Well, the solution is this simple. Join me now in creating the great prayer dome. Yes. And say thank you for that, a dome of pure prayer, arcing up over the stuff and sealing the broken pipe with prayer and faith alone. That's right. Let's demonstrate what so many of our best energy folks have so long believed, that faith 
will dispose of the problem. And under our dome, no ice will form because we will have the antifreeze of faith. Yes, and say thank you again for that. And when we've sealed the leak with our great and powerful dome, let us return once again to our idling vehicles and say thank you that the pumps are working as always for the faithful. And please, folks, don't worry or be confused about the coming hurricane season in the Gulf. Faith will keep those evil winds offshore. Or, if not, when the streetcars stop in new tarlines and flaming pellets of petrol seek out the hopeless Cajuns, well, laissez les bon temps rouler, because the apocalypse we've all been waiting on will finally have come at last. This is Reverend Bill. Until next end time, keep the faith and download my free app, An Idiot's Guide to the End of the World. Such a simpleton moment Living for the days that come around She plays liberty to the river Water singing with the banjo sound Ramble on, ramble right Make a future out of fighting for the living 
wondering what brought the GOP, or as I like to call them, the NOP, because all they know how to say is no, how they've come to their present state. I'm going to read to you from an article by Joseph Weisberg in Slate, which I think pretty well lays it out. Okay, says Jacob, one way to understand the divisions in the Republican Party is as a clash of regional philosophies. Northeastern conservatism is moderate, accepts the modern welfare state, and dislikes mixing religion and politics. Of course, except for the wacko teabaggers who have taken the Republican Party over in Maine. Then there's Western conservatism. It's hawkish, hates government, and embraces individual freedom. Southern conservatism is populist, draws on evangelical Christianity, and plays upon racial resentments. The big drama of the GOP over the past several decades has been the Northeastern view giving way to the Southern one, and too bad for that. To see this transformation in a single family witness the shift from George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush. It's true. Uh, Papa Bush went to Yale, lived in Maine, did not uh, dislike the, you know, the general welfare state. He was perfectly okay with it. He, But his son is kind of a combination of both the Western hawk and the, you know, the Southern um, uh, Ayatollah. So, yeah. Since the second Bush left the White House, something different appears to be happening in Republican land. It's basically a shift away from the Southern style conservatism to a more Western variety. We see this in the figures who have dominated the GOP since Barack Obama's election 19 months ago. They are Dick Cheney, Sarah Palin, Glenn Beck, and Rand Paul. My, what a gang of four. You see it in the right's overreaching theme, opposition to any expanded role for government, whether in promoting economic recovery, extending health care coverage, or regulating financial markets. You see it most strongly in the Tea Party movement that in recent months has captured the party's imagination and driven its agenda. That's because the party has no imagination, has no agenda, so you get a bunch of wingnuts together, you know, dressed like our founding fathers. I don't know where they found those costumes. And suddenly, they are the entertainment spirit of the GOP. On many issues, such as guns, taxes, and immigration, Southern and Western conservatives come out in the same place. They get there, however, by different means. The fundamental distinction is between a politics based on social and cultural issues, which is basically the South, and uh, one based on economics. Now, Southern conservatives care about government's moral stance, but don't mind when it spends freely on behalf of their constituents. Western conservatives, by contrast, are soft libertarians who want government out of people's way on principle. Southern Republicans are guided by the Bible. Western Republicans read the Constitution. Of course, they read it in their own peculiar way. Seen in historical terms, it's the difference between a movement descended from George Wallace and one that harks back to Barry Goldwater. Well, there is one difference here. George Wallace was not a Southern evangelist. He was not an Ayatollah. He was a racist, a racist who changed his mind. It's true. Barry Goldwater is the original Western hawk. The GOP's, oh, by the way, not only Western hawk, but my cousin. The GOP's Western tone of recent months summons the ghosts of Goldwater's disastrous but transformational presidential campaign of 1964. Goldwater didn't care about religion. He was a Jewish Episcopalian who once said that Jerry Falwell deserved a kick in the ass. No, excuse me, a kick in the nuts. Well, let's give him both. He wasn't focused on racial politics. There uh, aren't uh, many black people in Arizona. Goldwater boasted a Navajo tattoo, I wonder where, and like flying planes, shooting guns, and playing the tables in Las Vegas. Western conservatism succeeded on a national scale when Ronald Reagan preserved the cowboy look. He was brain dead, but he looked like a cowboy. 
The Palin-Beck opposition to universal health insurance is based on their intrinsic dislike of activist government. Of course, Sarah doesn't know what the word activist means, rather than on a Southern strategy argument that federal benefits will help poor blacks and not working class whites. My, my, my. This shift is partly the result of the political limitations of Southern conservatism and partly a response to Barack Obama's style of liberalism. A GOP dominated by Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Ralph Reed was increasingly not to potential supporters who happen to be secular, like Jewish, Mormon, gay, or who actually accepted evolution. The new Western conservatism is not simply a reincarnation of the old Goldwater version. Lacking anti-communism as an organizing principle, it has been forced to invent a collectivist demon, depicting Obama's centrist liberalism as socialism with an American face. How they ever see that man as a socialist, as a Maoist, as, of course, others call him Hitler, so they can't make up their mind. I don't know where this comes from. I think it just comes from bad food, not enough sleep, and too many bennies. Where the old Western conservatives had serious thinkers lurking in the background, the new wave is authentically anti-intellectual. If Sarah Palin is authentically anything, she is authentically anti-intellectual. And she probably doesn't know what that means. At the same time, Western conservatism has become uh, more inclusive. But cowboy-style constitutional fundamentalism is unlikely to prove a winning philosophy for Republicans beyond 2010. And I predict it won't do any good for them in 2010. For that, for a a winning philosophy, they need a conservatism that hasn't been in evidence lately. A version that's not Western or Southern, but instead tolerant, moderate, and mainstream. The problem is they've driven all of the tolerant, moderate, and mainstream Republicans out of the party. Either they've forced them to become independents, some of them have become Democrats, some of them have given up, given up politics altogether. The GOP doesn't understand that racism... Uh, intolerance on all levels, fundamentalism, uh, uh, extra tight reading of the Constitution as if what happened back in the late 18th century socially applies to us lock, stock, and barrel. If they think they're going to win, then they're going to be out of office for maybe a 100 years. I'm Skyping with Scott Wilde, who is the social media guru, member of the Oz team. How's everything out there in Bismarck, North Dakota? Things are wonderful, Peter. School's out for the summer, and we got some gorgeous weather here. Uh, the kids are out just screaming all over the block, so you can tell that they're ready for a full summer. And, you know, we like, as parents, we like to have them out of the house and in the backyard yelling up storm. So. Well, yeah, you live in an area like where I grew up where you don't have to worry about kids being kidnapped, held at ransom. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a better world. Well, we're going to talk, we're going to talk ones and zeros. What we're going to talk about in social media today, Scott, is how people, particularly uh, professional organizations, are using Facebook. Absolutely. Well, Facebook is absolutely becoming a critical part of the business process. And, and it's not just, you know, there's a lot of people that sign up Facebook, uh, uh, they sign up their business with a personal profile, and they actually should generate instead a Facebook fan page for their business. And the reason that they do this is because those pages are actually indexed by Google. You know, they're, they're public to the site. You don't even have to have a Facebook account to see someone's Facebook fan page. Whereas if you're using a personal profile for your business, you're only limited to 5,000 people that can be friends of your business. It's not indexed in the search engines because it's private. And I mean, you know, you have to be a friend of the business in order to see that information. So, very important that people create what's called a fan page, which is what we've done for Radio Free Oz. Um, you're starting to build up that community. And here's another reason um, why it becomes an important piece of any marketing strategy. And I'm going to use the example of Reebok Hockey and uh, CBS Sports and their March Madness tournament when you pick the brackets. Because that's the big thing that people do when they're um, during the March Madness, people want to pick the brackets, right? So in their big million-dollar TV commercials, instead of sending people to cbssports.com, they send people over to facebook.com slash brackets. And in the Reebok ads, when you want to see the finish to one of their commercials or see how the end is going to turn out, they send you over to Reebok or facebook.com slash Reebok hockey, for example, to watch the Sidney Crosby commercials. The reason they do this is because when people interact with that Facebook page and I either click the like button or I make a comment, that now shows up 
on the homepage of everyone who is a personal friend of mine in Facebook. So uh, right now I've got almost 1,500 people as friends. So when I like the Radio Free Oz website or if I like the CBS Sports Brackets, it posts that on my profile, which also shows up in the homepage feed for all of my friends, 1,400 plus people. Now when you think about it, if CBS Sports or Reebok would have sent me to their website to watch that video, how many people would have known that I actually watched that video or interacted with their Facebook brackets, right? Nope, hardly anybody. Maybe some people crunching some numbers at, at uh, CBS, I mean, but right. not... Right, geek at the end of the month is going to check the web metrics and know that this IP address came in at, for this amount of time on this date. But this is the reason that Facebook, you know, it, it holds true to the social media philosophy that it's the largest referral network in history. And when people, my friends, can personally see what I'm doing, that might entice them to want to play the brackets as well and, and you know, create a little competition. So you've got this opportunity for things to go viral. And that's really where the power of Facebook is. And we're going to use the same philosophy in the Radio Free Hours. We're going to actually serve up some content that's only available um, through the Facebook account in order to drive people there. We're going to have contests for... Yep. Um, what you call game-used equipment, scripts, signed scripts, signed paraphernalia. Uh, what I also call snot yeah. rag in a bag. You know, <laughs> you blow your nose, assign my name to it, and put it in a bag. Somebody wants it, or at least we can give it away as a prize. Uh, That's exactly right. Well, so uh, it's, it's going to get let them interact with the show in a whole new way and also see others out there that are friends and potential friends and even share the information a little more easily. So no. that's really the power of Facebook. Well, you showed the power when, you know, we're uh, – Radio Free Oz is now in the top 10 on Podcast Alley, which is a service that it has 80,000 different uh, uh, podcast uh, uh, services available. It has like 500,000 podcasts on the site. And the way that you rise in their ranking is by voting. And I had been encouraging people on the Facebook page to vote. And you said, wait a minute, you wrote a script. So there was a hot link on Facebook that went right to Radio Free Oz, which you can find on the uh, Radio Free Oz Facebook page. You go there and you can immediately vote for us. And we went from being, I don't know, somewhere. We're now number 10. We went from number 19 to number 10 within an hour. Yeah, so it, it really does work. Okay, next time we talk with you, we're going to talk Twitter, Scott. Right on. Okay, talk to you soon. Thanks. Dave, there's nothing weirder in the world than China. I know most of our listeners have not been there. I've been there a couple of times, and I tell you, one of the things about China that really, really surprised me is how bad the food is. No. Oh, yeah. What we call Chinese food, that's good. You know, uh -huh. love to have some Chinese food. Yeah, uh, and I was being treated by like the mayor of the particular town. They have, like the town of uh, of Beijing has these little sections in it. Like we were in like the technology section, mm -hmm. a million people. Yeah, yeah, just a little. So you know, and and they take us out for these really nice dinners. Yeah. And it was like, what end of the chicken does that come from? Mm, this is, now, these aren't. Uh, this is the chicken beak kind of diet. I've been. I was in a restaurant like that in New York once, yeah. and uh, you know, taken there by friends and it, it, what can I order on the menu that doesn't have that has eyes or it doesn't have well, has a spine or well this you yeah. know these are the beaks then they stuff the beaks they I don't stuff, want to get into no, it don't go there I don't, don't want to get it. it's on a lazy yeah. Susan and it couldn't have gotten lazy enough way out of sea urchin territory okay all right all right this little something anyway. from Mick newspaper all okay. right about 15,000 snakes were spotted slithering along a road near a village in northern Beijing just recently in what local authorities said may have been part of a Buddhist Ceremony. This, according to China's Global Times, mm. right? The Huarou District Bureau of Landscape and Forestry, and I'm trying to be as Chinese as possible there. I probably what I, I think said it was probably, atonal, rather yeah, probably tonal, means carrot head premier, and we're never going to get this on the web out there. All right, so that bureau, that bureau of Landscape and Forestry was quick to assure locals that the rambling reptiles had nothing to do with the weather. I don't know why. Nothing to do with the weather. No, that, that must that was have the guy who was out there counting 15,000, 15,001, 15,000. It has nothing to do with the weather. It's good. Weather's good out here. It's snake territory. It's yeah, okay. I mean, the thing that gets me is that why does, that, why does it reassure the, the populace when they see 15,000 snakes crossing the road that it's not about the weather? Well, because is, obviously they could be falling out of the sky, which would be really weird. Raining cats and snakes. Yeah, I'm no, sure that's right. You don't want to have Crawling across the road, you no. want to make sure they they didn't just 
up well, here there, you know. And the seismological office stressed uh-huh. that it did not signal an impending earthquake. Now, in this country, 15,000 snakes crossing the road doesn't mean an earthquake either. It means that you have been taking the wrong hallucinogen. You know, I mean, good Lord. Okay, don't believe the rumors and stop spreading them, the Forestry Bureau said. They've got those science T-shirts. They've got those printed up in China. They've had it for years. Yang Fubu, what's his name? Yang Fubu from the Beijing Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation Center said traffic was even stopped for a while to minimize the number of snakes crushed by passing vehicles. How thoughtful of them. Oh, I should think so. Besides, they'd be slipping off the road, you know. Slipping and a slide. Look out, I mean, we're coming into snake territory. Unless, Ooh, you, unless you've got snake yeah. breaks. Now, that's another thing altogether. It's a Chinese thing. I don't want to get into it. Most of them, the weather was wrong. Uh-huh. It wasn't earthquake you season. You put on snake chains. <laughs> you put on your snake chains, which is, I think, your boss. So those are the chains. Snakes eating their own tail. And there you go. Right. All right. About 10 foam boxes and bamboo sticks were also found nearby, indicating, at least to the Chinese, that the snakes had been released, the newspaper says. Right. Well, I see why they're calling it a 15,000 of them. That is quite a Buddhist ceremony. Sure, that's a ceremony where uh, animals are released into the wild, and it's beneficial and a good thing to do. However, they usually pick crickets. Yeah, and, and usually they don't do it so that they're going to, like, invade a village and cause everybody to think the weather's bad or that there's an earthquake. It's rare to see such a mass release, I'm quoting. Mm-hmm. It might be a Buddhist ceremony, Yang said. Mm-hmm. Such campaigns should be encouraged, but it's irrational to release so many at the same place at one time. What does he mean, such campaigns should be encouraged? Is, is it political? Is it a statement? Has it got something to do with Mao Zedong and the Long March? What is it? I mean, I Maybe don't it's get... somewhere in the little red book, I don't know, one of those Tang Dynasty poems. Yes. Snakes yeah. on the road. It is heaven. They are the people. I will join them. The snakes are many. We are few. Evening, I drink and go home. There's a man named David Goldman who writes a column for the Asia Times under the uh, pseudonym of Spengler. Spengler was the... Um, I think it was a German historian who uh, basically came out with a very remarkable book called The Decline of the West. I think it came out in the early uh, 20th century and uh, basically said, we're on the way out. Anyway, he's, he's very interested in the relationship between the Western world and the Muslim world. And here he's talking about one, as far as he's concerned, um, irreconcilable contradiction. More than the Quran's sanction of wife-beating, the legal ground on which the Quran sanctions it reveals an impassable gulf between Islamic and Western law. The sovereign grants inalienable rights to every individual in Western society, of which protection from violence is foremost. Every individual stands in direct relation to the state, which wields a monopoly of violence. Islam's legal system is radically different. The father is a governor or administrator of the family, that is, a little sovereign within his domestic realm, with the right to employ violence to control his wife and children. That is the self-understanding of modern Islam, spelled out by Muslim American scholars, and it is incompatible with the Western concept of human rights. By extension, the power of the little sovereign of the family can include the killing of wayward wives and female relations. Execution for domestic crimes, often called honor killing, is not mentioned in the Quran, but the practice is so widespread in Muslim countries, the United Nations Population Fund estimates an annual toll of 5,000, that it is recognized in what we might term Islamic common law. Muslim courts either do not prosecute so-called honor killings or prosecute them more leniently than other crimes. Article 340 of Jordan's Penal Code states, He who discovers his wife or one of his female relatives committing adultery and kills, wounds, or injures one of them is exempted from any penalty. That's convenient. Syria imposes only a two-year prison sentence for such killings. Pakistan forbids them, but then rarely punishes them. Nonetheless, some Western legal authorities, including the president of Britain's Supreme Court, Lord Phillips, promote the use of Sharia courts to adjudicate family disputes in Western nations. Dr. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, drew a storm of criticism in 2008 when he proposed that Sharia courts could hear domestic cases among Muslims in the United Kingdom. I don't get the Brits. 
sometimes. I don't see how they can be so cockamamie, so foul and muddle-headed about this. Is it empire guilt? Are they trying to expiate the sins of three or four hundred years of subordination of foreign peoples? Are they just drinking, you know, bad beer or eating cold food? This is just silly thinking. Punishments, this is now talking about uh, Dr. Ron Williams, punishments, he stipulated, should be drawn from the laws of England and Wales. Stoning, whipping, and amputating hands were out of the question. He did not mention spanking, a telling omission, for Islamic authorities explicitly allow husbands to inflict limited corporal punishment on their wives. What's limited corporal punishment? That means he didn't kill her. It's cool. A number of putatively pro-family legal scholars in the United States argue that Sharia should be applied to American family law. This is monstrous. Not since German jurists endorsed Adolf Hitler's race laws during the 1930s have legal theorists in the West betrayed their principles so egregiously. I can find no record of a recognized Muslim authority repudiating wife-beating. Tariq Ramadan, the Swiss Muslim scholar who purports to offer a westernized version of Islam, notoriously defended wife-beating in a 2008 televised debate with then-French Interior Minister Nicolas Sarkozy. Here's what he says. The traditional society is organically incompatible with the first principle of law in modern liberal democracy, namely that the state wields the monopoly of violence. Sharia, in principle, cannot be adapted to the laws of the modern democratic states, for it is founded on the deeply ingrained notion that the family is the state in miniature and that the head of the family may employ violent compulsion just as does the state. From the vantage point of Western family law, wife-beating is an atrocity, even in the case that a devoted Muslim wife were to accept being beaten. Family courts in the West would intervene to separate a wife-beater from his family in the interests of the children. The president of the North American Council for Muslim Women, Sharifa Al-Kabtib, estimated in 1998 that physical violence occurred in about 10% of Muslim marriages in the United States. She says the rates of verbal and emotional abuse may be as high as 50% based upon international studies and preliminary research in the United States. In Islam, the family father has the ability to be a petty tyrant in his own home. That may explain the great mystery of modern Islam, namely, why nearly a billion and a half human beings have failed over eight centuries to produce scientific or cultural figures whose names are world recognizable. Even in Joseph Stalin's Russia, individuals could find refuge in their families and in creative pursuits not discouraged by the state. For example, pure science and classical music. Islam can make the family itself an oppressive institution. Got her hands in her pockets and she's waiting for a downtown train. Yeah, and the high heel boots with the straps on low and her head hanging down in shame. Oh, 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 The wolves all dress up just like sheep and they go and hit the town. And Sharon never sees them, but they're hanging all around. Sweet little cherry got a switchblade, Jimmy, come to take her down at 4th and May. Her mind in a haze of the better days before her body was an ad campaign. Pocketbooks are all that Sherry sees. The dashboard dogs and backseat hogs and down onto her knees. Yeah, I am tempted, I am weak. Yes, I'm too weak to try to speak. Oh no. Yeah, I am tempted, I'm ashamed. Yeah, I'm ashamed and I'm to blame. Cherry tree, you'll see. Yeah, I'm tempted.
Jerry took the last bus home in the middle of the pouring rain. She saw the bad boys sleeping and the good girls weeping through the fog on the window panes. Oh, Jerry wants to make it right, but she never has a prayer. Cause as long as there are bad boys, they'll be penny millionaires. Insomniac at Unconscious Village, and it's the last day of our last day sale. So read 'em the gospel slick. Thanks, boss. Hey, put yourself down under this. It's a horn dog of Babylon, struggle snuff, smother set in sulfur slack claw. You'd prophesize a price at a thousand dollars, but read my forehead. Six sixty-six sixty-six. Rise now, for I come to your bedroom with my long rod to measure you for the last bed you'll ever need. Okay, Loach. We got 'em all. You tell 'em. I said it, Dad. I'm up to my gonads in Rapture Sauce, Christian Slater's, Lamb of God's, Downey Jr.'s, and Seven Sealies at Unconscious Village. I am asleep. You are. Well, Dave, you know we talked about uh, that guy Wrecker who uh, was found taking a rent boy to Europe, and we get uh, well, who's the guy that had methamphetamine and the and the homosexual massages and oh, it's just an endless stream of them. Not to mention the guys who uh, you know used to head the state senate but are now in the state prison. I mean, yeah, uh, and, and what's his name, Craig, who kept spreading his legs in the men's room. Oh, of, yeah, of, yeah. Of airports. Well, you know, there's some good news. Good news in the sense that we we finally are presented with someone who has come out, uh-huh. understands what it meant to be a hypocrite, right, and where wh- what he's going to do now, not to necessarily repair what he's done, but to live to live an honest life, to live an open well, life. This is good news. Oh, it's very good news. Yeah. He's, he's a California legislator named Ray Ashburn, and he came out in March after years of, as uh, operating as a family values Republican, and he's hmm. now speaking out in favor of gay rights. So he's not very popular probably in certain uh, Republican coffee clutches. all right? He spoke on the Senate, uh, state Senate floor, it's California, recently about a bill that could affect gay marriage. Should it become legal in the state again? And he said, on a personal note, before I speak to the bill, I would not have been speaking on a measure dealing with sexual orientation ever prior to the events that have transpired in my life over the last three months. Well, what is it that transpired? Uh, He was arrested for drunken driving in March, and after a torrent of rumors that Ashburn, a staunch family values Republican who never voted in favor of gay rights, had been at a gay club before his arrest, when that was basically Mm -hmm, proved, mm -hmm. he came out as a gay man. He said, I'm finding my way, he told a local news station after the vote for gay marriage. He said he voted against gay rights in the past in order to keep his sexuality under wraps. I'm not proud of it, he said. 
even spoke out in favor of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I'm not proud of it, he said, but here he is. I mean, I like this guy. Yes, if that were uh, made a kind of a general practice, if you could get, you know, some time back from purgatory for, (laughs) you know, for coming out. Well, I I think it would benefit probably a larger class of Republicans and uh, not to mention church fathers that, you know, it would be, it would uh, square things with heaven pretty much. Don't you think? Yeah, it would give an, but I think that everybody who came out and, and, and admitted that they were gay or admitted that they had paid for abortions in their past or any of those, you know, uh, uh, devilish practices would be shunned so thoroughly by the GOP that it would only add to the ranks of the Democrats. Just one more step towards a one party state. Coming to the end here, Dave, and I've just got to have some of that. Tang, tang. Oh, these tang, 7th century tang poets. They are uh, matured in the bottle, so to speak. This is Tufu, Meandering River. Every fallen petal diminishes spring. So the wind showers down a thousand just to make me sad. I'll keep my eyes on the ones that remain and have some wine, whether it's good for me or not. Kingfisher's nest in the ruins by the river. A stone unicorn lies on its side in the park. Nature says, enjoy yourself and don't waste time. Why worry then about things like rank and office? Daily after court, I take my clothes to the pawn shop. Every night I come back from the river bank drunk. I have an unpaid bill in every tavern. Well, who lives to be 70 anyway? Butterflies deep in the flowers, dragonflies flicking the river's surface. Let them all go on. Time and the wind and the light. Since we're told not to defy them, let's enjoy them while we can. That's Radio Free Oz here. The Oz team that makes it possible. Your co-host David Osman, John Cumming, our ones and zeros guru, Phil Fountain. Oh, he makes it all so pretty. Tom Goodwillow is our webmaster. Chaz Glass has joined the team. He's doing the financials. Dave Maloney is our superb audio engineer. Bill McIntyre produces the whole thing. And Scott Wilde, great Scott, he's our social media guru. Catch you on the next side.